Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Roy Krevel. It's great to have you here, Roy. Tell me what's going on for you at the moment, what you're thinking about, what matters to you right now. Right now, there's a lot of deadlines going on. <laughs> so that matters a lot. Yes. Um, I, I think I've come to that stage in my... Um, my career, where I um, my responsibilities somehow is more team leading, making sure that we make the deadlines, that we submit the reports and the accounts and all that. So I, uh, I tend to spend too much time with deadlines. Deadlines is going on. And, and of course, you're working in a world where, whereas... As early research, you just went to different places and found stuff out and talked to people. Uh, now things are more grant driven. Is that fair to say? Yes, somehow. Uh, yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Of course. Um, I spent a lot of time in Latin America with indigenous peoples, and 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 as a young academic, you can do that. You, you have lots of freedom. Mm. Uh, but somehow the system is geared towards you, like um, applying for funds, getting funds, and then making reports and and all that. And it's it's really good, helpful because it puts you in a position where you can sometimes provide scholarships. And you can try to build up things that you could not do before. So I'm I'm grateful for that, especially because Norway is not not the most difficult place, not the worst place to be in as an academic. There could be worse places to be. Of course. So I, I did not mean to complain when I said deadlines are going on. That's actually a good thing. Now, the way I look back at your career, and I've been fortunate enough to follow it for some time, is that there are a few sort of distinct aspects. There's a sports aspect. There's an indigenous struggles and indigenous knowledges and media aspect. And there's a sort of peace journalism, war reporting aspect. Would it be fair to divide your efforts in those three areas, although they overlap in certain ways, of course? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, if I I were you and I was going to divide my work, I think I would see more or less the same structure as you see, <laughs> definitely. It's not the, always it's so easy to see that from the inside. Point taken. Um, yeah, and in terms of this, this the issue that you just mentioned of indigenous folks in Latin America, this is something that runs throughout your work. It's a rich seam of engagement and shared knowledge. And I know you've managed to get going, no doubt in partnership with others, a new initiative about this. And I wondered if you could share with us a few details about that new new effort yeah we um well well actually this is something that's much bigger and, and started long before me um there is a solidarity organization in norway called the students and academics international fund and it's been going on since the 1960s and that fund has a long-standing um cooperation with indigenous peoples and indigenous universities in uh -huh. Latin America. And I was sort of raised um, 
people that came into academia sort of through them. And I used to work for them also as a coordinator while I was studying and, and later. So it only felt natural when I um, completed my PhD some 25 years ago, when was it 15, 20 years ago, it only felt natural to, to continue working with them and working with these universities. So it's something that's much bigger. And, and I guess my job is more or less just to continue what has been going on for a long time. But we did manage to set up a fairly extensive program with indigenous universities, first to, to provide scholarships for master's degree. Um, I think that's that's quite important if you're trying to, to get an university, autonomous, independent university going, you need also to think about the education of the staff. And that's sort of a parallel process to what happened in Norway as well. In, in the 70s and 80s, lots of local university colleges were set up. And um, in the beginning, many of the teachers did not have master's degrees. They got it now, of course, and now that they have been going through a process where the, the majority perhaps now would have PhDs. So it's that process sort of is also natural, as I see it, for other universities, perhaps indigenous universities in, in Latin America. And currently we, together, um, four universities and, and quite a lot of people, are, we have 28 PhD scholarships, I think. Most of them, most of the scholars, uh, most of the students, PhD students, are indigenous from different language groups in Colombia, Bolivia, Ecuador, Mexico, but also some non-indigenous. It's it's open to anyone in theory. Uh, and do they come to Oslo to study or does this support them in their home institutions? Yes, yes. The, the, this is to support the uh, the home institutions. Actually, the um, well, it, it's important, of course, that they each individual get a degree. It would not be good if they did not get that degree. But the point is not degrees for individual academics or students. It's um, building institutions, autonomous institutions. So the long-term goal is actually to help establish or to cultivate or grow indigenous universities in, in certain places in Latin America. Now, I understand that. I guess one of the tendencies or one of the issues in the past has been not only the suppression of indigenous knowledge and the domination of Spanish and Portuguese language in universities, but also across the whole sector, the small number of programs accredited to give doctorates. So lots mm -hmm. of people from places like Mexico, regardless of their ethnic or linguistic background, came to Spain to do doctorates because you couldn't do one in Mexico in their area, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. And the same in Colombia. I know. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. That's um, that's something actually we observe here as well. Two of the um, the main persons in this program, the leaders, one of those who initiated the whole program, are Nicaraguans from Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Both of them, they went to Spain to get the PhDs. Mm -hmm. But of course, having the PhDs and belonging to a university in Nicaragua 
which has been accepted by the government, partly because they have PhDs, makes it now possible for them to establish new programs to support indigenous um, universities elsewhere. Uh, but it's a double-edged sword somehow, um, sort of, they need to work with us, of course, um, to become independent, sort of, of the uh, Western or Westernized university systems. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a paradox, paradoxical situation, actually. Yeah, yeah. Depends, yeah. Um, say. And I was fortunate enough some years ago to be invited by you to participate for a couple of days with a group of indigenous journalists from Latin America, some African journalists, and so on. And um, I was, uh, I had a great time. I, I, I met some wonderful people, thanks to you, including the Gramscian chef. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But quite apart from that, I'm interested in how this relates or doesn't relate to indigenous people in the Nordic countries. Uh, uh, do they ever connect with some of these uh, initiatives or are the initiatives purely centered on Latin America? Uh, that's, that's a tricky, difficult question. Oh, no, it's not difficult in the sense that I, I could easily say no. There's very little connection between the two spheres. And I, I know that because uh, I, for a long time, knew a lot more about indigenous peoples and indigenous people's struggles in Latin America than I knew about indigenous peoples in, in Norway. Uh, until I was invited to be a um, adjunct professor at the uh, indigenous university in, in Norway, the Sami, they have a university up north, well-run, Excellent academics, not big, but anyways, important and, and, and nice. Uh, and I then came to, to learn a lot about the, the international network they are part of. But of course, that network is based on English. And as you know, from Latin America, indigenous peoples or Latin American scholars, they, they are not that happy about English speaking networks. So it's sort of two separate spheres. Yes. No, it's a very interesting and important point, I think, that uh, this is an element of resistance. And sadly, in, in many Latin American universities and in many Latin American countries, there is pressure from states and educational institutions to publish in English, which has always been understandable in areas like science and medicine, because English has been the lingua franca since the Second World War with the collapse of both Russian and German as the principal academic languages and to a certain extent French. But as you know, at least as well, if not better than do I, in the social sciences and the humanities, there's a vast array of really excellent journals in Portuguese and Spanish, if not in indigenous languages. And now these are being discounted again and again in these countries. It, and that hegemony of English, which I'm sure you experienced to a certain extent in Norway, but Less of a problem because people grow up learning English at a high level, but nevertheless, you will experience there, I'm sure. It's just appalling, mm. um, given yeah. this incredibly rich vein of knowledge that you and I read every day, right? Mm. 
there's actually so much to learn. If if you venture into reading these journals, Spanish journals, there's so so in, much incredible research being done, and also by indigenous scholars, of course. Oh yeah. But if you you are from an indigenous community, you would in the first place have had to learn Spanish and then to publish in Spanish. But to get to the level where you publish in English is is complicated. And I would never do that myself. I would never publish in English with, without the support of a language editor or someone. My university would pay for someone to help me get the language at that level. No, and I've, I've had that support. lots of Spanish native speakers who were publishing in English uh, to, to help them because there's there are some things that even if you're an expert, if you're not a native speaker, are hard to get at. And there are some things mm. that native speakers don't know that only experts know. <laughs> In any event, I'm focusing again on the question of indigenous knowledges. You've been working on this really for a very long time. And, of course, you were involved with reporting on the Zapatistas in mm. Mexico in the mid-1990s. What sorts of developments have you seen over that quarter of a century, 30 years, in terms of both the expression of Indigenous knowledges internationally and the rise of Indigenous media and journalism? Now I need to think before I answer. <laughs> um, it's actually easier for me to speak from a Nordic perspective here because mm -hmm. I, I do know how the landscape looked like before the Zapatistas. So, so we could start with that. Um, I would say that before the Zapatistas and after the Zapatistas, that, that's an important, something important changed in, let's say, 1994, 95, 96, perhaps starting with 1992, uh, when they sort of celebrated, five celebrated or whatever, 500 years of the discovery, supposedly, of Latin America. Um, before that, there was a tendency in all the Nordic countries of viewing indigenous peoples as interesting, folkloric, but also backwards. And um, also in the journalism from Latin America, it's clear to see that while there was lots of sympathy the, the main vein of sympathy or the main vein of analysis, especially on, on the leftist side, was more like a um, more traditional Marxist argument where the indigenous peoples simply did not fit. Okay, So being indigenous was something you unfortunately had to stop being. But that sort of changed a lot in the Nordic countries, Starting 1992, um, with the Zapatistas, it accelerated, and and it led us into something very differently different. Um, and you can see that in in especially in in the journalism coming out of Latin America today, because most of the journalists now reporting from Latin America have been educated in. NGOs or at universities or journalism schools from, uh, um, 
how to put that from a different perspective mm. that would that would be much more open to diversity cultural diversity than than before um but still while i'm when i listen to myself now I, I sound a little bit optimistic and i should not be too optimistic because at the same time we observe that there are really few correspondents or people traveling or trying to report from latin america so in that sense the information that is coming to norway sweden denmark finland um In many ways, it's not as good as it used to be. While the perspectives are more enriching, it's it's a lot less information coming. And when it comes, it has been copy and pasted from news agencies, mostly from France or from the United States. Yeah. It is interesting to see, for instance, the caravans coming from Central America up through Mexico, even when there's protest caravans coming to the, getting closer to the American borders, you would see them distinctively through the eyes of um, um, North American citizens. Mm -hmm. You would always report on them as something that's coming to us. Even if you're in Norway, you would read stories about yeah. the caravans coming to us. Yeah, okay, I think, yeah, I, and I sound totally confused. So let's go to the next question, please. No, 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 you don't sound confused at all. I think that's very valuable. And to talk about it from the perspective of the Nordic region is valuable. I guess the next thing I wanted to ask is about the complex understanding of indigeneity, which, as you know, is very different in Latin America from what it is in the United States or Aotearoa, New Zealand, very, very different. It really is about fully identifying as Indigenous and being understood as Indigenous and generally involving having language along with other quasi-biological indices. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, of course, is relevant here is that some parts of Latin America, like Guatemala and Mexico, have really very large percentages of the population that identify as Indigenous, others very few because of genocide and because of suppression. But the other thing that's interesting that I wanted to ask you about is that in the last Mexican census, which took place during COVID-19, so it was complicated, for the first time people could identify as Afro-Mexican. And basically about a quarter of the previous population that identified as indigenous looks as though it shifted its identification to Afro-Mexican. So what was 26% of the population saying I'm indigenous went to 20, and then you had 6% of the population mm. saying I'm Afro-Mexican. And, mm. of course, in places like uh, Colombia, but not only there, there are very significant Afro-descended populations. These populations tend to be silenced and in, made invisible, even more than indigenous people, I think. Um, and their heroic maintenance of language over centuries of enslavement is not supported in school or in university, almost at all. And 
I wondered about that interesting question, the sort of shifting relationship between being Indigenous and being Black, and mm -hmm. also the question of what can be done to assist in the maintenance of a culture that is also very under threat, namely that of Afro-descended Latin Americans. I'm not trying to say Norway should fix all mm -hmm. of this, <laughs> but it's there are a set of issues that interest me, and I wondered if you had a view yeah. on and these are really interesting questions, Toby. It's, it's so important, actually, to think along those lines. Um, one thing I would like to say first is that I think everywhere I've traveled, with any culture, you would find some elements of racism. Also within indigenous populations, I, I, I won't hesitate saying that. I've seen indigenous leaders act in what I would describe as a racist way or have racist stereotypes against Afro-Colombians, for instance. So we need to um, we need to be clear about that. Racism is, is a problem all over the place. And somehow, quite often, not always, quite often, African Nicaraguans or African Colombians or uh, African Ecuadorians would be at the bottom of the hierarchy, the pyramid. Not always. Sometimes there would be uh, different African groups, for instance, on the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua. You would find both African Nicaraguans that identify themselves as Creole with education and historically with the background being able to speak English, would, would have a social status which is would be sort of yeah, middle class, upper middle class. While at the same time, there would be those defined as blacks that would be at the bottom of the hierarchy. But I think it's it's necessary to analyze these um these issues in detail because when yeah, let's say you have a program that provides scholarships either for masters or PhD or whatever, you need to take this into account. You need to have a gender strategy, you need to have strategies for inclusiveness of ind different indigenous groups, and you need to also understand that the African Colombians or African Nicaraguans also also needs that respect and, and, and they also need to have that chance of getting uh, education, for instance. Um, so so what to do about that? I, I'm not quite sure. Well, I would like to see, in particular, the Spanish and Portuguese governments providing money for this in, in the yeah. case of people from Afro-descended backgrounds, although not all of those people were slaves, of course. There is evidence of a migration from Africa to Mexico that's pre-Colombian -Col pre in that sense. Yeah. My next question, Roy, if I may, and I know we only have a little bit of time left, you'll let me know when you need to go, is again an outsider's perspective on your work, which, as I say, I've had the privilege of following for very many years. And it is that there's some sort of dialectic that you engage or movements that you straddle between ethnography and political economy, between participant observation and institutional analysis. And to my way of thinking, one of the benefits of your approach, that's how I understand it, is that it avoids either the leftist functionalism of Marxism, where 
everything has gone to hell in a high handbasket because of total state and corporate control, but also to avoid the imaginary empowerment that can come with a romanticization of ordinary peoples, right? That you get some kind of dialectic going between these. Do you recognize yourself in this description or is it entirely mad? <laughs> First of all, thank you for saying that, Toby. But I, I've surely made both mistakes. Romanticizing, what? yes, definitely quite a lot. And the opposite also, of course. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm a little bit hesitant because I, I know my work and I when I read some of the things I did earlier, I'm not quite sure if I agree with everything I've written, but that's how it is, of course. Um, if I was to define myself, I, I still consider myself primarily as an activist. I don't know if it's wise to say that when you're an academic, but I think... Um, that would always be my first priority mm. to support. If I see um, communities or indigenous organizations struggle for something that I I think they 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 um, need respect for or support in, then I would ask, uh, how could I how could I help? And sometimes that would end up in being interesting articles in the end. But I, I'm not an anthropologist and I, uh, yeah. Studying things comes second. Mm -hmm. Well, it may be that activism is about blending institutional and participant observation analysis. Um, in terms of Priorities today in the world of, let's call it conflict journalism or peace journalism. I know you're already working on issues related to that. We've seen a grisly form of war coverage over Ukraine and especially Gaza. What are you seeing in Norway and in other areas of your portfolio? How are you experiencing the reportage of these conflicts and others in, in Yemen, in Sudan, and so on? Well, it's got so many sides to it. I, I think we experienced a time, maybe a generation or two ago, you could expect, when I was a journalist, you could expect that most um, warring parties would engage with journalists and they would even try to convince you or they even try to give you some sort of version of the story in, in, in the hope that you would tell it. But now you might expect simply to get killed. Like th there's been definitely a change which makes it um, increasingly likely to meet organizations or um, armies even that have absolutely no interest in speaking with journalists. So that's, that's one thing that, mm -hmm. that requires new methodologies, new ways of thinking as a journalist, not only about your safety and security, but also about how to, to, to get that information you need to report. The second thing I, I think I observe from perhaps the luxury of Northern Europe 
is that we had a time with lots of reporters, many people out there trying to report back home. We don't have that anymore for many reasons, but the industry of, of journalism is becoming more difficult. So uh, quite often the information you get, if you get it from, from an, a Norwegian or someone from Northern Europe, it would be from someone who's at the place for the first time, maybe the first couple of days for the first time, which is really difficult. Uh, like a generation ago, you, you would have all these experienced correspondents, for instance, in Latin America, that would have been traveling for a long time. So I think that's that's a second structural change. The third one is, of course, that you can now easily access if you're particularly interested in 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 something in the Middle East or Syria or Gaza or Colombia. You could access directly lots of different media, mm. and you would find. Perhaps you would find uh, your sort of, I wouldn't use the term echo chamber, but you would find those you trust and those you distrust. You can make your own menu sort of of news, but you would not be in a position where you could easily judge which one to trust or evaluate the quality of the different sources. So so it's still a, a system that's not that good. But so many things have changed when it comes to... being informed about what's going on. One of the things that it seems to me is still the case and something that you've looked at in the past is the idea of the war correspondent. And this is a very Western idea. Mm. Uh, It is about a person who, within a given year, might go to a dozen countries and report on conflicts, not speaking the language, not knowing the religion, etc., etc. And it's been an heroic figure often in the mythology of these things. And the very few war correspondents who get killed in wars have movies made about them, eulogies read to them, and so on. As you and I know, until the conflict in Gaza, which claimed the lives of the same number of journalists within a couple of months, as died within the entire period between the French retreat from Indochina in 54 and the US one in 75, literally 65 journalists killed in 21 years, Mm. 65 killed in in two months in Gaza. But until then, the places that we know best in Latin America were the centres of the killing of journalists, particularly Colombia and Mexico, and they still are, but there are other places too. And lots of these people were local journalists who had never even left the province where they worked, let alone be war correspondents. So this is a long-winded beginning to Mm -hmm. a question, Professor Roy, and I apologise for that. But I want to give context for those who don't know this sort of Mm. history and may be listening. What's your view of the idea of the war correspondent? And will we ever get peace correspondence? Hmm. Okay, so so my view is that being a war correspondent is, correspondent is impossible, right? Uh, if that's your job and you have to travel around, you will never get in a place in a position where you can get to know the context, the people, what's going on, the mechanisms, the stru- structures behind the war well enough to actually be able to report it in a way that the audience will be interested in. 
Oh, it's really difficult to be so well informed that you can tell the story elegantly and and in a way that people can connect with. Okay, so it's we. I I know a few war correspondents that I respect. And mainly because they have such deep knowledge of the things they talk about, they have been talking about. But they have put themselves in positions where they have been able to learn over years um, and understand the different things they need to explain to the audience. And then sometimes, of course, um, if you know two cultures, you can actually give some extra value to the information to make sure that one culture not familiar with the second one understands better what's going on in the other place, of course. There are still needs for translation between cultures, not only in languages, of course. But um, today my hope is perhaps... Um, connecting local correspondents. Then there's quite a few initiatives going on where local correspondents, you know that they are in, in, in constantly in Mexico and elsewhere, they are in danger, much more dif- difficult and much more dangerous to be a local correspondent than a war correspondent. So one thing is to to to, to support them, protect themselves or help them establish networks so that they can support each other. There are many such initiatives and and I I think they are important. And the other thing is that they are in a place where they can provide much more detail and much better information than any war correspondent can can ever do. And and we should make use of the technology that's available to us now and, and and um, find new ways of being informed. Connecting with local correspondents is is a great way, and you can see that being done by some of the main media now. So, so that's a good way forward. The other one, which I makes me a little bit optimistic, if if I can be an optimist for for a second, is the way that satellite images is being used, and how some organizations are democratizing also artificial intelligence to investigate satellite images. And by doing that, they can uncover environmental crimes, war crimes. And there are some really great examples of how that can be done. And for authoritarian regimes or for bandits or whatever, it's much, much more difficult to get to these people than to the local correspondents. So so I think from a journalism educated perspective, we should also perhaps think about these possibilities, reporting in new ways. And returning, if we can, to the question of indigenous journalism, as you say, the kind of information that we increasingly get in the global north comes from François Quatre, Deutsche Welle, the BBC, Agence France Press, Associated Press. And with the exception of François Quatre, these are mostly things that have been dominant for over a century, it's like nothing's changed. Just like the Hollywood studios, one or two come and go, but basically it's the same story. What do you think might be done to ensure that you in Oslo or I in Madrid would have greater opportunity to read in English, in Norwegian, 
in Spanish for that matter, the reporting of Indigenous journalists that might be about Indigenous issues or might not be. Mm. Mm. What do we need to do to have that situation enlarged, made more feasible? Mm. Okay, so, so let me now be careful about not being an optimist. Because <laughs> in, in the 90s, there was a lot of optimism going around, like uh, the internet will change things. Uh, everyone can communicate with uh, everyone. We can stay in touch directly and, and, and all that. And that it, it would sort of remake the um, power relations of the world somehow. Uh, but it did turn out that some people, a few people, got even richer than anyone before them in the end. And there's a concentration of power going on, which will only accelerate um, because of artificial intelligence and, and all these new techniques that's coming in. So, so I, I will start by not being an optimist. But then, okay, so if you're not an optimist, there are still things we can do. And let's take um, translations these days. It is possible, actually to speak with people, even though you don't know the language or they don't know your language. You can read newspapers, you can read, read uh, web pages. Even if you don't yourself understand the web page, you can use technology to, to understand it. Um, but I think there's two fundamental things that needs we need to, to do. One thing has to do with source criticism, education in source criticism. That's getting more and more urgent at all types of universities, of course. And at journalism educations, of course, we need to focus a lot on how to how to find trustworthy information and how to um, yeah, find out that something is not trustworthy. That's that's a core issue. And the other one is that what I have been hoping for my my hope has for a long time been connected to the to movement of establishing autonomous indigenous universities and schools. I don't think the things we are now discussing will ever be possible or realistic unless indigenous peoples find or succeed in establishing something which gives them peace to actually um, take the lead in the production of knowledge or production of information. Not a monopoly. I'm not saying that they should be the only one to produce information or knowledge about indigenous affairs, because, of course, everyone needs to be engaged in that. But they need at least to have space, a peaceful space, where they can be the main agents in telling stories which they find important. Of course, for me, those two things are the most important things, but mm. it would not solve the situation. It would not solve because we know that when power and capital is being concentrated, things are not moving in the right direction. No. But what about if there were greater efforts to set up national systems for indigenous media distribution? Uh, the kinds of things that go on in Canada, for example, where you would have 
uh, a native peoples, indigenous peoples, Afro-descended peoples, national television network run for and by people and also digital media networks. Now, these are tough things to do in a certain sense in countries that are not wealthy like Canada is. But we're talking about countries that are, in the case of, say, Mexico, actually not poor countries in terms of gross domestic product and that have a big middle class and a, a big oligarchy. Mm. <laughs> so they have a mass yeah. peasantry and so on as well. What about attempts to get outside countries that are wealthy? I can't help but think of the Sovereign Wealth Fund um, to step up to the mark on that issue, on helping to establish national media distribution systems for Indigenous voices. Mm. Yeah. I think the can Canadian example is really interesting. There's there's also a couple of interesting examples from the Nordic countries and, and New Zealand uh, and elsewhere. Um, so there might be a few models that could be used. And, and I would be optimistic in many cases, but my suspicion is that when indigenous peoples have demands or there are conflicts about natural resources, when, when the going it gets really tough, then governments of some countries would brand these initiatives as foreign agents. Um, and yeah, we then know what will happen. Uh, some of the projects I've been related to have been branded as foreign agents, or not even branded, we've been registered as foreign agents. And once you have been registered as a foreign agent, then you're on the constant surveillance, everything you do in that country. So, okay, it's a long argument, but basically I think that what has been successful is when indigenous people peoples have been organized and organized extremely well and then based on that type of organizations has succeeded in 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 getting a few demands through uh, i think colombia over the last few years could be could be an example of that at least in terms of education especially in the highlands of colombia they have had quite a few successes that, um, yeah, that could be built on. Um, yeah. And setting up radio stations that are meant to be part yeah. of the peace process that are highly participatory. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to say now, Toby, that um, I have a deadline. Kindergarten. <laughs> Well, it was great to see you, Roy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. your sharing Thank your you. experience with us. And uh, all the best in kindergarten. I hope you find some nice other children to play with. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me, Toby. Bye-bye. <laughs>